everybody this morning? You doing well? Everybody feel good? Well, good. I'm glad. All right. This morning, we are continuing in the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning, I hope to get to 1 Corinthians 13. And so you can turn in your Bible to Romans 12. <laughs> because we are not quite done with the list of of gifts that Paul mentions, that God has given gifts to the church. He mentions it in the Romans letter. He mentions when writing to the Ephesians that God gives gifts to men. And every time that he brings up this subject, we see that it's the same as in 1 Corinthians. We see that the purpose for the gifts is always for the unity of the body and always for the purpose of bringing about a fellowship where people put others ahead of themselves. You all know that in Philippians 2, he talks about putting others ahead of yourself, thinking of others as better than yourself, and using Christ as the example. So this is really very thematic to Pauline writing. Paul's version of Christianity, his understanding of what Christianity is, transcends just an intellectual rising to a set of propositions, even though that is important to getting our theology right and understanding Christian doctrine, it is not what defines Christian life. Christian life is defined by how we interact with each other, how we care for each other, and ultimately how we sacrifice for each other. 
So Paul is going to say here in Romans 12 again that God gives gifts to men. And then we're going to briefly look at the Ephesians passage that talks about God giving gifts to men. And then hopefully we will get to 1 Corinthians 13 before too late. And since the 12 o'clock game has been moved back to a night game, I have nowhere to be. So this could take a while. I like that there are people who laugh after I say that. And there's always one or two people who have a, a look of panic. He, he might mean that. <laughs> we could be here for a while. Chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Let's start at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Does this sound familiar? This is the same analogy, let's call it, that Paul set up in 1 Corinthians where he compared the human body to the body of Christ in the same way that the human body has many different parts, but they all have particular tasks. They all have particular reasons why they're part of the body. He then says it's the same within the church, within the body of Christ. There are different people, and they have different assignments from God, and so they are gifted with different abilities, but they all fit together into one body of Christ. So it's the same idea again. Verse 6, and since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. If prophecy... Well, then prophesy according to the proportion of your faith. That's the Greek word analogia. It's the word from which we get analogy. And so let us exercise the telling forth or the forth telling in analogy, in proportion with our faith. If service, that is the word that is typically translated ministry. If there is ministry that we're doing for other people, well, then do our serving, and he that teaches, do the teaching. And he who exhorts, then in his exhortation, and he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are all gifts, he's saying, from God that God gives to particular members of the body for the good of the whole body, so that the whole body can be lifted up and edified. So since we all have different gifts, everybody does not have the same gift, then according to the grace that is given us, well then we each exercise these gifts accordingly. So if it's prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if it's service, then you do it in your serving he that teaches in his teaching, he that exhorts in his exhortation. 
He who gives with liberality. I, I just want to point out right there that as Paul is listing the different gifts that are within the body, notice that he says some people just have the gift of giving. Some people are just very liberal and very generous. And others are not gifted with that same gift. I don't believe that any Christians give grudgingly. I think that we all give cheerfully. That's what Paul says, because God loves a cheerful giver. But some people simply have the gift to give, the same way that some people have the gift of exhortation. Some people don't have that. But more than once over the last 15 years, I've gotten calls from the men I trust, and they have exhorted me. And I've taken to heart the things that they've said, because they've been gifted by God to exhort me. I don't start with the notion, who are you or who do you think you are and how dare you say that to me? Because we've all known preachers and pastors who are unapproachable, unteachable, unassailable, you can't get to them. I always assume that since God is sovereign, if somebody exhorts me from the congregation, if somebody exhorts me among our deacons, well then God has assigned them to do that to keep me in line. And I'm using myself as an example so that we can all understand that God gives different people the ability to do different things within the body for the good of the whole body. And if he is doing that sovereignly and purposefully, well, then everything is working for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. So rather than take the prideful, arrogant stance of how dare you exhort me, we ought to take the exhortation as something that God has assigned to us. Some people just have the gift of serving, ministry. And some people simply have the gift of service. There are just some people who naturally care for other people and are servile in the way that they approach that, are humble in the way that they approach that, and they're not doing it to lift themselves up. They're not hoping that somebody else saw it or that they'll get accolades later on because they did it. They're doing it because it's the right thing to do and it serves the body. Some people just have the gift of teaching. Some people have the gift to, to give. Some people have the gift to show mercy according to this. And Paul says, when you show mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Some people just require a great deal of mercy. Some people, it's real hard not to get up in their face and say, stop it. What are you doing? Quit that. But to be able to approach them, to bring them along, to exhort them appropriately, but also be merciful in your approach to them, this is a gifting that God gives to people. But then in verse 9, after listing all these various different gifts that people have, he then talks about the primary verse or the primary gift. It's certainly the primary gift in 1 Corinthians 13, and it always seems to come up in Paul's writing about the gifts of God. He says, but let love be without Hypocrisy. Now we got to talk about the word love because whenever Paul speaks this way about love, he doesn't use the word phileo. There is also in the Greek language a third word that is translated love in the English language. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible. It's the word eros. It's the word from which we get erotic, erotic love. 
But here he chooses the word agape. And agape doesn't just mean love like an emotion. Oh, I love you, but I might not love you tomorrow. I'll love you depending on how you treat me. If you don't treat me well, or if I get tired of you, or I find somebody I love more, well, then I'll stop love. That's not the kind of love Paul's talking about. In fact, Paul is going to define the kind of love he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking about sacrificial love, a kind of love that is a determinate love. The kind of love that you have set your mind to and set your heart and affections to and you're loving somebody simply for the benefit of the person you're loving. You recognize that they need to be loved and so you love them. And whenever Paul talks about the kind of love that God has, he always talks about agape forms of love. Because think about what God did for you. How did he love you? How much did he love you? How did he demonstrate his love for you? He did for you everything necessary for your full and complete salvation. He did for you everything necessary to take you into your heavenly estate and to live forever in his glory. He made it okay for you to approach that light that Paul says no man approaches. God in his love, in his kindness, did for you everything you needed, even though throughout the Bible you are called a worm, you are called an enemy of God, you're called people who are under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And Paul says that you were just as depraved as all the rest. You weren't the good ones when God came down looking for somebody, but he set his electing love on you sacrificially, not because it improved him, but because you needed it. And you needed it so badly that he did it for you sacrificially by sending his son to take the beating, to take the wrath, to die in your place to rise again, never to die again, guaranteeing your future resurrection and your future eternity with God. So it was a sacrificial gift that God gave to you, and then Paul can pick that up and say, now since God has been that way with you, how should you be with each other? We, because we're humans, because we're fleshly, we have a tendency to think of love only emotionally, and we seem to think of it conditionally. I will love you as long as you earn my love, as long as you live up to what it takes for me to love you. But God isn't that way. If God's love was predicated on how you were as a person, how devoted you were to him, how you followed his way of living in holiness and righteousness, How long would he put up with you before he had to change his mind if he loved the way you love? But he doesn't love that way. He loves sacrificially. He loves eternally. He loves purposefully. He loves determinately. And therefore, you're called to be that way, especially when you're dealing with somebody in the body who's just unlovable. Well, then you're not loving them because you have found some quality within them that is so lovable that you can't help yourself. You just love them. 
Instead, you're told to love them, not because of what you get out of it, but because of what they get out of it. Now, Paul is going to use that word many times this morning. And he's going to define it and define it and define it because he wants people to understand that he's not talking about human, emotional, conditional love. He's talking about the kind of love that God has for enemies, for people who don't improve him at all, for people who don't enrich him at all. But he does for the one that he loves the thing that the one who is loved most needs. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Got it? So then Paul can say, let that kind of love be without hypocrisy. In other words, don't fake it. If you love somebody sacrificially, if you love somebody because they are in the body of Christ, if you love somebody because God clearly loves them, then he said, don't make it a pretend thing. Don't do it so that you can show off. You know where the word hypocrite comes from, right? It's an ancient Greek word that actually comes out of the theater. And the hypocrite was the person who would come out on stage wearing a mask so you didn't know who he was. And he would describe the mistakes that all the other actors had made as part of the plot so that you would understand why the tragedy was befalling them. And he was known as the hypocrite. And Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be like an actor on the stage of history and time. Don't come out and wear a mask that you can hide behind while you're busy pointing at everybody else and telling what their faults are. Instead, love them in the way they need to be loved, not to be seen of men, not to raise yourself up, and not so that you can add to their pain or agony so that you can say, I was really good to that person, but you know what they did? Let me tell you about them. That's what the hypocrite does. So let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now that is a New Testament concept. Oftentimes, when I take a stand and say, I'm sorry, but there is right and there is wrong, and what you're doing is wrong. People say, well, you're being legalistic. Aren't you free from the law? We sang it this morning, free from the law, happy condition. Aren't you free of all that legalism, Jim? Yeah, but the New Testament also says, abhor, not just mildly dislike, but abhor what is evil. And God defines what's evil. And even if the whole society says, this is okay. I'm going to pick an obvious example here. Even if the whole society gets together as a voting block and says, killing babies is right. That it's okay now to abort children before they even draw their first breath. Even if everybody says that's right, it's still wrong. It's still murder. And we're supposed to not just wink at things that are evil, not just look the other way. We're supposed to abhor what is evil. And then we're supposed to cling to what is good. 
So be devoted to one another. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That sounds like Philippians 2 again. That every man will esteem every other man as better than himself. So here's Paul saying it again. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Do you understand what that phrase means? Don't get lazy in doing the right thing. How often have you heard me say through these 15 years? Some people like Tom and Jeff have heard it so much they're tired of it. I have said for 15 years, I've said it for more than that, do the next right thing. You want to know what to do? Don't worry about tomorrow, next week, next month. Do the next right thing. And that's what Paul's essentially saying here. Don't lag behind in your diligence. In being a Christian, in living the way a Christian lives, in abhorring evil, in clinging to good, don't get lazy. And it seems like so many folks within the Christian church have just gotten lazy. Think about it for just a moment. Think about the fact that the American population is made up still to this day the majority still call themselves Christian. America is still under the influence of Christianity, even though the numbers are now starting to lag. It's still the majority. Imagine what the church could do to society if we ever got together and worked as a voting block. But instead, we're too busy going along and getting along, and we don't want to cause any whipple Whipples. We don't want to cause whipples. We don't want to cause any ripples or waves. We don't want to be a problem for anybody. We want everybody to like us. We don't want anybody to say anything bad about Christianity. And because we've become so wimpy in our proclamation of the truth of Christianity, now society at large thinks they can walk all over us, and they seem to be able to. Because we've, we've gotten lazy. We've lagged in our diligence. Back when Roe versus Wade started. Back when it was a Supreme Court case. Even before it got to the Supreme Court. What if the church had risen up as a voting block and said, we have an opinion here. Well, then things would have been much different. But the ability to kind of collectively hide our head in the sand and say, well, whatever society wants, that's fine. Well, then we've become lagging in our diligence. He says, don't do that. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sound familiar? It's the same thing Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians. And be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, 
but associate with the lowly. Isn't that again what Paul was talking about? Remember last week I talked about the two-tiered Roman Corinthian society and how people look down on the lowly. And here's Paul again saying, it's okay to associate with the lowly. Bring them up. Be a benefit to them. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Okay, so now turn to Ephesians. For those of you who are wondering, yes, I'm still introducing Turn to Ephesians, chapter 4. So now in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is again going to pick up the idea that God gives gifts to his church. And then he's going to say why the gifts occur, and again it's for the purpose of unity. It's for the purpose of caring for one another. Now in this instance... In Ephesians 4, he is going to talk about leadership within the church, that when the church gathers, God gifts the church with leadership. He does not use the word charismata. He's not talking about spiritual gifts. He's not talking about pneumatikos. In this instance, he uses the word doma, which is just the Greek word for a gift. But he's still saying that God gives, shall we call it, normal gifts. To churches, which is why all churches have somebody who can do the teaching, somebody who can gather the group and lead the group. Otherwise, people get together and just stare at each other and go, what do you want to do? And then ring toss breaks out and frisbee. There has to be somebody who knows why the group is gathered. So let's start in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. And there's that word again. There's that agape idea again. Forbearing, long-suffering, patience. Why would Paul even bring these words up? Why would he even bring up the idea that you need to do it with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing long-suffering and forbearance for one another sacrificially? Why would he bring that up? Because you're going to need it. It's not always going to be easy. If you think that the Christian walk is just going to happen magically, it's not. You have to set yourself to the task of taking care of other people, praying for other people, exhorting other people, ministering to other people, loving other people, and that requires a good deal of patience and long-suffering because not everybody is going to respond well to your love and ministry to them. Some people are not going to respond positively at all, and yet you have to keep doing what is good for the person who's being loved. You get that? So do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Okay, now we read in Romans that Paul used that word diligence. 
Don't get lazy. Be diligent in seeking these things. Now he brings it up again. Be diligent to preserve unity. Now within the church, over the course of many, many years, I can think of many stories of why there were church splits. And it's always because two people started an argument and then everybody else took sides. And then before it's over, half the congregation dislikes the other half of the congregation. And then we'll show you, we'll go down the street and start our own church. And then you've got two churches that believe essentially the same thing who just don't like each other. And Paul here says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit because it's not always going to be easy. Be diligent, he says, to preserve the bond of peace. And that's going to take long suffering. And that's going to take patience. And sometimes somebody's going to rub you the wrong way. Sometimes somebody's going to say something you don't like or you don't appreciate. And you have two options. You can attack or you can just patiently wait and be diligent to preserve the unity. So it's obvious what Paul's command is within the Christian body you're to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Look at verse 4. Because there is one body and there is one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, now if that's true of God, if God the sovereign one is the one Lord, the one God and Father, and he is over everybody, and he is through everybody, and he is in everybody, not just everybody, but everything. If he is in all, over all, through all, then isn't there unity in that fact? The common unifying factor is the presence of God and the presence of the Lord and the one spirit and the one baptism and the one body. Therefore, that one body ought to strive to make sure that there's peace within the body. Has anybody here ever been in a nitpicking, warring, backbiting church? <laughs> Ain't it fun? Tom and I were in a church out in California that that wasn't just nitpicky and backbiting, but we actually had a pecking order. And in order to get to the top of the pecking order, you had to tell bad things about other people, right? That's right. I mean, there's, there was no unity at all. There was this sort of pyramid structure where you were always fighting to get to the top of the pyramid. And you knew you were never going to because the pastor was the top of the pyramid. But oh, if you could just get into his sphere, then you'd be right there near the top. Paul doesn't talk that way. Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So to each one of us, we were given faith and we were given a grace. We were given something that we don't deserve. God was kind to us in giving us an ability, giving us a gift for the good of the whole body. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives 
And he gave gifts to men. That's Psalm 68, 18. He gave gifts to men. And he gave gifts to the church on purpose. Now there's a parenthetical phrase where he argues about the fact that Christ ascended. Starting in verse 9. Now this expression that he ascended. What does it mean except that he also descended into the lowest parts of the earth? And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, having put that argument in place, he returns to the concept of gifts. So Christ has given gifts to men, gifts to the church. These are Christ's gifts. Verse 11, and he gave some, not everyone, but he gave some as apostles. Paul knows very well that not everybody's an apostle. In 1 Corinthians, he asked that question. Is everybody an apostle? The answer is no. But God did gift the church with some apostles and with some prophets, both those who could foretell the future like John saw in visions, and those that could simply tell forth the truth of the gospel. And he gave some to be evangelists. I, I just have to take a moment and define this word evangelist because it's being misused in the church these days. There are folks who travel around, call themselves traveling evangelists. And the purpose is that they have a revival in a church. And then you're supposed to bring your friends to come see the evangelist. And he's going to add to the numbers of your church. That's why a church would call an evangelist. And usually he's, uh, he's not there to just tell the plain and simple gospel. But that's what the word evangelist means. The word gospel is euangelion in the Greek language. The person who preaches the euangelion is the euangelistus. Translated evangelist. So the purpose of the evangelist is to go tell the good news. And so God has gifted within the church some to be apostles, some to be a prophet, and some to be an evangelist, to go out and tell the good news, the euangelion. And some as pastors, that's actually the word for shepherds. It's the exact same word, poimen. So some who care for the flock of God, and some teachers. It's the word from which we get didactic. Some people accuse me of being too didactic. And I say, yeah, it's my job. Yeah, that's who I am. I'm a teacher. Now, what's the purpose for God giving apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. Again, the purpose of these gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is not so that everybody can go, ooh, look at him. He's a pastor. He's an important one. No, the whole point is unity of the body. The whole point is for the lifting up of the whole body, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to one another, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's why there's pastors and teachers. That's why they're teaching you what the Bible says. The evangelist goes out and preaches the good news. 
then you're going to become part of a body. And within that body, there's going to be people who can teach you the word. And the purpose of the teaching of the word is that there be a unity of faith. I have had several friends over the years who have come into GCA and something that they've commented on. In fact, it's a story that that Alex likes to tell frequently. That when my friend David Morris was here, one of the things he commented on was that he travels all over the place. He's in and out of many different churches and congregations. And the thing about GCA that he commented on was there's a lot of unity here. Well, that's not by accident. That's because there's unity of doctrine, unity of thought, unity of theology. We've all been taught what the word says and we all agree on what the word says and therefore we agree with each other. And so there's unity of the faith. Until we all attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man. Now when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's going to say, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I acted like a child. Now I'm mature. Now I'm grown up. Now it's time to talk like a man, to be like a man. Well, that's the same theme here. Until we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man. Do you realize what he's saying there? That until people have been taught and understand the things of the Son of God and have the knowledge of the Son of God and until they understand the unity of the faith, until they're operating like the body of Christ, they're still not grown up. Grown up churches, grown up bodies act differently than childish bodies. Childish bodies bicker and fight. Can I get a witness on? She's got two little kids with her this morning, so I picked, could have also picked on the Sandmans. Because little kids, just naturally, the Bible says that rebellion just beats in the heart of a child. Okay, now can I get a witness? <laughs> Kellen, what do you got? <laughs> but when a body grows up, the body learns to become mature, and the body learns how to care for each other and take care of each other. Look, when I was young, or no, I can even say it better this way. You've probably all heard the adage. You've all heard the phrase, if I had known I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. I am the living, walking example of that. If I had known I was still going to be alive at 61, I wouldn't have been so hard on my body through my 20s and 30s. But I was. Now that I'm this age... Do you know what most of my mature life is about? Maintenance. I'm, I'm constantly taking care of my body, myself. I suddenly care what I eat. I wear lidocaine pads because my muscles ache. Tylenol is my friend. Well, that's what Paul's getting at, that a mature body takes care of the body. Young people don't care. Young people will fight and bicker and argue and cause all kinds of dissension. Immature bodies, immature churches act like that. But grown-up bodies are diligent to keep that bond of peace, to take care of one another, to sacrifice for each other with long-suffering, to do whatever we've got to do to keep the unity. 
And that's the purpose for the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming of men, but speaking the truth again in love, in agape, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So what I hope you got from that introduction, I'm almost out of time. I've just finished my introduction. If you need to stand up, or adjust what you're wearing or anything, just, just do that. In fact, in a moment, when we turn to 1 Corinthians, everybody get up and stretch and get your minds ready because we're about to start this morning's lesson. <laughs> but do you get the, the thinking of Paul? We've seen it several different places now that we're to be diligent to keep the unity of the body. In order to keep the unity of the body, God has gifted certain men with certain gifts those certain gifts are for the good of the whole body. Those gifts are exercised by the administration of God himself who gifts everybody with the appropriate gift for that person, for the task that they've been assigned within the body and they're to do it with humbleness and with patience and ultimately with sacrifice and love. And that's the purpose of the body life within the church. And he's saying it over and over and over. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody stand up and stretch. Be diligent. Don't let the lethargy get a hold of you. Stand up and stretch. Everybody feel better? Some of you didn't even stand up. That was your moment. That was your opportunity. Get up. Stretch a little bit. All right. I'm ready for the word. Let's go. Okay, so that was, in fact, including the stretch, all introduction. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul has just listed the gifts again. Starting in chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body, individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. Now, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they, but earnestly desire 
the better gifts, the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. So even if you can say, I got none of anything that's in that list. I got nothing. I, I'm not raising people from the dead. I've never opened blind eyes. I'm not a teacher or an apostle. I'm not, I, I'm not in that list anywhere. Now Paul is going to say, but you can do this. Everybody in the body can do this. And in fact, you're called to do this. And to do this diligently. To do this with all your heart, but also not just your heart, but all your mind. Remember when the Pharisees asked Jesus, which is the great commandment? He said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But then he said, and the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on all these things hang the law and the prophets. Now, if the love, if the sacrificial love of the neighbor is the fulfilling of the law and the prophets, then that's not something that you're just going to feel. That's something you're commanded to do. You get the point? Because he said it's the great command. If I speak with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, but I don't have love, some of your translations will say charity, it's the word agape, even if I'm making all this noise, even if I'm talking with every tongue known to man, every glossa, every language on the planet, if there's a, a language out there, I know how to speak it. And beyond that, if I speak the tongues of angels, languages you don't even find on planet Earth, that only angelic creatures would know, something that it would be virtually impossible for Paul to know, and everybody would go, ooh, if he did it, even if he spoke all the languages and all the tongues, but doesn't have love, he said, well, then I'm just a, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm a percussionist by trade. <laughs> I know what clanging cymbals sound like. I used to wear earplugs when I played drums all the time, which is why I can still hear. Because many, many of my drumming friends sit so close to clanging cymbals, and they sit about ear level, and you smash those things, and they are loud, and they are broad-banded, pitch-wise. And they'll do great damage to your ears. So Paul is not making a mistake by saying, even if I'm impressively speaking all the languages of men and the language of angels themselves, but I don't love you, if I don't have sacrificial love for you, then it's no help. I'm just a clanging, deafening symbol. Some of your translations will say for noisy gong, which is what the NASB says. He said, I'm just a noisy piece of brass. Some people think that that could be a trumpet, brass trumpet that somebody gets in your ear and just blows. But I think gong is the right translation because it's a meaningless sound. At least a trumpet can blow notes and, and can communicate. When you hear these particular notes, get ready for war. A trumpet can actually have a language, and Paul admits that. But how many people here have ever heard a gong? <laughs> Gongs are just noise. 
When I used to play with the symphony many, many years ago, oh, I loved the gong. When there was a piece that had a gong in it, just because I could make a big, ugly noise. <laughs> just, man, you prime that thing up until it was just vibrating and then, whoom! Oh, that was fun to do. But it didn't mean anything. It's just a noise. The violins are busy playing notes. The brass, the woodwinds, everybody's making beautiful sounds. And a gong. (laughs) Paul said, that's what I'm like. Even if I know everything, and I'm telling you everything in every language known to man, but I don't have love for you. I'm just a gong. That, by the way, was my impression of a gong. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Though I have the gift of prophecy, and though I know all the mysteries, and even if I had all knowledge. Now, in a moment, he's going to say, we only know in part. We see through this glass darkly. So he's not claiming to have all knowledge, but he's saying, even if I reached the point where I had complete and utter knowledge of every godly thing there was to tell you, if I could explain heaven, if I could explain hell below, if I could tell you the name of every angel, if I could name the stars, if I knew how many hairs were on your head, if I had all knowledge, if I had all faith, so as to remove mountains but I don't have love, I'm nothing. So again, notice that he's going through the list that I just read. These are all the gifts. And he says not everybody has these gifts. Not everybody has healing. Not everybody has prophecy. Not everybody has uh, the gift to, to do miracles. Well, now he's saying even if I did all those gifts and didn't just do them, but did them impossibly well, but I don't love you, It counts for nothing. Understand that that's the platform. That's the the very high standard that Paul puts sacrificial love on. That sacrificial love for one another within the body is more important than speaking in tongues. More important than doing miracles. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries... And I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, there's the ministering thing. We've seen it several times. Though I'm ministering to people, I gave all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, even if my sacrifice was such sacrifice that I would let myself be burned. Even if I did that, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. So all that sacrifice, all that ministry, all that very ostentatious and obvious giving and serving and ministering and even burning myself, he said, all of that counts for nothing. It doesn't benefit me in the least If God looks at me and says, yeah, but you didn't love people. And then he defines the kind of love he's talking about. Love is patient. 
How often has he already said? It takes patience, it takes endurance, it takes long-suffering to put up with each other. And so love is patient. Love is kind. Do you know where the English word kind comes from? It's actually a shortened version of the word kind. You know what it is to be kind one? Well, what is it to say my kinfolk are coming over? That's a good Tennessee phrase. Going out to see my kin. Talking about your family. Talking about your loved ones. Well, if you are kinned one to another, that is the word that eventually came down into the English language as kind. It can still be pronounced kinned, but then people would look at you funny. But we think of the word kind as nice. I mean, these are kind of generic words. I used to have an English professor who, if you use the word nice to describe anything in any paper, he'd hand it back to you and make you retype the whole thing and take that word out. Because he said, that's such a nothing word. We went to the zoo. It was nice. And so when we think of kind, we think of it that way. We think, well, he he was kind, he was nice. But Paul is using the word very distinctly. Be brethren with each other. Be kinfolk to one another. Be connected to one another. Love each other the way you love your family. So love is patient, love is kind, and love is not jealous. He's not talking about the kind of jealousy that God has. God is a jealous God. He has a right to be jealous. He owns what he owns, and what he owns is everything. And the people that he owns are the people that he chose, and And he has the right to do what he wants, and he's a jealous God. When people are his people, you can't have them. (coughs) But love, sacrificial love, is not jealous. Have you ever been around or been connected to a highly jealous person? Oh, that's a lot of fun. Where are you going? What are you doing? Who would you see? When are you going to be back? How long are you going to be gone? When are you going to be here again? How come you're not taking me? I have to be with you all the time. I don't know what you're doing. Jealousy after a while starts to get, you know, you, you got to give me a little space. Mm-hmm. Well, real sacrificial love is not that kind of, I need you to make me better. I need you to get me well. I need you for me to be complete. It's not like that. Sacrificial love is doing what is good for the other person. It is not jealous. Love does not brag And sacrificial love is not arrogant. I think what Paul's getting at here is just like love is not to be with hypocrisy. That same idea of loving somebody else so that you can brag about it. Have you ever helped somebody and then realized that nobody knew that you helped somebody? So you got to go tell somebody? (laughs) I want credit for the fact that I did this. Well, that's what he's talking about, that love just does the next right thing and then doesn't look back to see if anybody noticed. It just does what is good for the one being loved. Love doesn't brag. Love's not arrogant, which is the word for puffed up. Love does not act unbecomingly. Okay, so this gets a little complicated If I really love you, then 
our time together is not going to leave you a worse person because I acted up. You get the idea? Paul is saying, don't act unbecoming. If you really love somebody, you will lift them up. You will make them a better person. You will, you will exhort them. You will call them to righteousness and holy living. And you're not going to act so worldly that they come away thinking, oh, that's the way Christians act. Or that they come away thinking, well, if he's doing it, it must be okay for me. Love doesn't act unbecoming. And it does not seek its own. It's not me first. Looking on every man is better than yourself. Looking after the things of others rather than your own things. That's what Paul writes in Philippians 2. That love, sacrificial love, does not seek its own. Sacrificial love, here's a tough one, is not provoked. We're easily provoked, aren't we? This is part of what God really had to break me of. I was an angry young man, quick to fight, quick to argue, quick to make a point. Because I was just constantly provoked by what other people did. But if you're sacrificing for the good of other people, then you can't be provoked. You can't be made angry. You're going to persevere in your kindness and your long-suffering for that person. So love is not provoked, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. You know what he's talking about here. You did this to me. Wait till you see what I'm going to do to you. He says, no, if if you suffer a wrong, it's the same thing as Jesus talking about praying for those that spitefully use you. The Bible says, and it comes up time and time again, that we are to trust in God's sovereign ability to righteously judge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will recompense. So it's not up to you to recompense. It's up to you to forgive, to be kind, to be long-suffering, to be patient, and not to take into account what people have done to you. Have you ever had an argument with somebody? Here, this will do it. You've had an argument with somebody when they've said, well, you know, two years ago when you, okay, they're bringing up something again that you did in the past. Paul's saying sacrificial love isn't like that. It it forgets what happened in the past and deals with right now. Right now, I care about you. Right now, I'm ministering to you. Right now, you have a need. I can fill it. I don't care about what you've ever said or done to me in the past. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This is kind of what we were talking about earlier using the abortion example. and Saying even if all the world says that they agree with abortion, that nevertheless we're to stand up for what's right. Well, here he's saying, and don't rejoice with the people who are rejoicing in it. Don't join the gay day parades. There, there's a good example. You stand up for the things that are right, and you don't join in with people in unrighteousness. If people are going out partying all night, if people are going out drinking all night, if people, you get it. He said, don't join in on that, because that's not what love does. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. 
There's where your joy comes from. In sacrificial love with one another, you're happy to see somebody else come to the truth. So love bears all things. That means puts up with all things. Believes all things. The things that we're learning, the things that we've been taught, what the Bible says, where we get faith, all of this, we believe these things. And I would even say that it goes further than that and believes the best of people. Believes that this call to unity and this call to patience and this call to forbearance, we believe that. And it hopes all things. And love endures all things, puts up with all things. Love, now we're going to find out the difference between the human love and this agape love. Love never fails. Human love, failure. (laughs) Human fleshly love, I'll love you as long as you love me. Everybody in this room has had the experience at some point in their life where love has stopped, whether it was your high school sweetheart that didn't love you anymore, whether it was a parent that turned their back, whether it was a brother or sister you never speak to anymore. There there are so many circumstances in life where love fails. But true love, agape love, sacrificial love, never gives up. Never fails because it's, a, it's not a love that is based in you, in your capability, in your flesh, in your wisdom. It's not based in that. It's a love that is based in the everlasting, ever-living goodness of God. And because that's the source of the love and because he is ever-existent and because he ever lives and ever loves, therefore, love that is generated from him by the Spirit through you is a love that doesn't fail. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they're going to cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, we can debate for the next hour and a half what the perfect is. There are people, you can get on the internet now, and you can find people who believe that it's talking about the canon. That once the canon was closed, and these 66 books are our Bible, that's the perfect, and therefore all the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, and that's where cessationism comes in. But I really do believe that what he's talking about here, I'm convinced of this, is the return of Christ the perfect one. I understand that by saying when the perfect comes, the perfect is Christ in his return, that by saying that, I'm also saying that the gifts of the Spirit have not ceased. And there are some people who will accuse me of promoting charismatic beliefs as a result of saying that. But the simple reality is that unless we can say for sure that there's something in the history of the church which constitutes the perfect that these gifts do still continue. Paul says that they do still go on. Now, because it's up to God who administers these gifts, who doles them out, who makes sure how they work within the body, well, then we can have gifts like tongue-talking if they're necessary. But they're not necessary within the church, at least in my experience right now. And so God hasn't done that. But wait a minute, the gift of knowledge... 
do we really want to argue that the gift of knowledge has ceased? Or the ability to speak under the influence of the Spirit and speak the Word of God, do we want to say that has ceased within the church? Faith, that's one of the gifts that Paul listed. Has that stopped? Helps. Administrations. Has that stopped? Well, no. So we can't parcel up the gifts and say, well, these have and these haven't and these have. Instead, I just leave it in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who can do whatever he wants with the body of the church and give the body of the church whatever gifts are necessary for that body at that time in that place. And one day when Christ returns, who I am convinced is what Paul is talking about, when he returns these gifts to the body are no longer necessary because the body of Christ will be joined with Christ. And those gifts that tell us more about Christ, that bring us to faith in Christ, that demonstrate that we are the body of Christ, those gifts aren't necessary anymore. We're with Christ. We're joined with Christ. We're the bride of Christ. We don't need those earthly gifts anymore. So when the perfect comes, verse 10, when the perfect comes, that which is partial will be done away with. So we prophesy partially, we have knowledge partially, but all of these things that we, that we see through this glass darkly that we don't fully understand yet, then we're going to fully understand it. Then we're going to see him face to face instead of through a glass darkly. So I believe that Paul is arguing for the return of Christ, the perfect. And at this point, verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I used to think like a child and reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. I think he's saying that within the context of when the perfect comes, we don't need any of this anymore. These are the things that are teaching us, that are instructing us, that are leading us and guiding us. These are the things that are supposed to be creating unity within the body of Christ. But when the perfect comes back, we don't need those former things. For now we see through a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes then we'll see him face to face. How can that not be the return of Christ? It certainly can't be the canon. It certainly can't be so many of the other things that people argue are the perfect. I think the perfect is Christ. Who else? What else? What else could possibly be perfect in this world? Complete. Totality. Teleos is the Greek word. The end of everything. The perfect one. Well, I think that's Christ because when he returns, we will see him face to face. Right now, before he comes, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Right now, Christ fully knows you, but you don't fully know him. He's coming back wearing a vesture a breastplate with a name written on the breastplate and on his thigh that no man knows. There, there's evidence number one that you don't know everything about Christ. 
He knows everything about you. But when you see him face to face, then you're going to know him fully the way he fully knows you, says Paul. For right now I see through a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. But right now, all these gifts, all these gifts, all the various gifts, all the things that God does, all the gifts that he gives to the body, the thing that's going to continue when everything else fades away, when the tongues are gone, the knowledge is gone, when you don't need teachers anymore, when, when all of the gifts that he has given to men are no longer necessary, there's only three things that are going to continue. Faith, hope, love. Those are the three that continue. Faith in Christ, confidence in him and his finished work. Hope, that looking forward to that expectation of all the glorious things to come. And sacrificial love continues. Not only because he sacrificially loves you, but how much are you really going to be able to love the other saints when he comes to gather you and you're around the throne? I would think it's going to be hard to worship because I'm going to be looking at people going, can you believe this? (laughs) We're here. Our faith became sight. This is reality. It's happening. It's so very, very exciting. We're going to love each other. We're going to have faith in him. And we're going to have that hope of all the things he promised that are to come. That constant expectation. That looking forward to our heavenly destiny. Those three things continue. But the greatest of these, says Paul, is love. So... We shall be like him, but after these many weeks of talking about these spiritual gifts, because next week we're going to talk about the resurrection, all that kind of stuff, because we've already talked about chapter 14, so we're going to start in chapter 15 next week. But this whole section of the Corinthian letter, combined with what we've read out of Romans and Ephesians and Philippians, and I hope that what you see, what you get out of all this is that the unity within the church is not something that just happens. It's something you work at and that you're diligent at. And when it gets hard, you're called to be patient. And when you find the unlovable, you're called to sacrificial love. And where you can minister, you minister. Where you can help, you help. Where you can administer, you administer. Where you can give, you give. I hope that the result of this is that we don't, by Tuesday, just forget it all. And that we don't just go back to being fleshly humans. But that we remember that the church is a unique and a distinct entity on planet Earth. And that it's really remarkable, it's really amazing that the church exists. This is God entering into time. This is the God who made everything and sacrificed his son for particular people, entering into human history and calling people out and gathering those people to be his son's body, the church of Christ. And that's not, that's not anything we should take lightly. It's not something we should ignore. It's not something that we should act casually about. We should persevere in the unity of the faith 
the unity of hope and love, be kind, be kin to one another, be patient with one another, and in that way show sacrificially how much we love the God who saved us. I could have just said that four weeks ago and saved you a lot of time. But do you get it? But do you get it? But do you get it? Because I've talked myself blue. Trying to just get us into that concept of the unity of the spirit. So I hope you get it. Now when you go out to the parking lot, no fights. (laughs) (laughs) Say goodbye to the internet people. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.